Paul Bones considered Laurel Hill Stories number 32 for November 2021. Teen Angels, Annie Inglis, Joseph Jersiakonis, May Bibbighouse, Bessie Merritt, and Maud Ritu. Cemetery is a National Historic Landmark, an arboretum, a sculpture garden, a nature preserve, and an active cemetery in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It opened in 1836, and it remains a popular visiting spot for tens of thousands of people every year. Its sister cemetery, West Laurel Hill Cemetery, located across the Schuylkill River in Balakinwood, was founded in 1869. It has a history and a population of its own. I am Joe Lex, retired professor of emergency medicine at Temple University in Philadelphia and volunteer tour guide at Laurel Hill Cemetery and West Laurel Hill Cemetery and volunteer podcaster. This November podcast concerns people you have probably never heard of. They are not major figures in history, and only one of them has really left us a legacy. But their stories, despite being as much as 140 years old, may have a familiar ring. Annie Inglis, who spent her brief life in a wheelchair, gave a gift of a $1 gold piece and made it into something which continues to help thousands of Philadelphians to this day. Joseph Jersiakonis Jr. was a gifted cellist whose life was cut short by a bullet. May Bibbighouse was described as a good church-going girl who developed a narcotic habit as a teenager. It would eventually be her undoing. And several members of a Philadelphia social club inadvertently chose the wrong time for a casual summer cruise, and they paid with their lives. They are all teen angels for all bones considered Laurel Hill stories. I think the story of Annie Inglis and her gold coin is just as embedded in the lore of Philadelphia as Russell Conwell and his Acres of Diamonds speech. Annie, a teenager confined to a wheelchair for many years, was on her deathbed in 1875. She said to have given her mother Caroline her most sacred possession, a gold $1 piece, to start to fund to care for other incurables like herself. Annie had been disabled by scarlet fever early in life, and she'd spent most of her life in a wheelchair, probably from the arthritis associated with this disease in those pre-antibiotic days. She was dependent on the kindness of others until she died of a gastric hemorrhage in May 1875, with her death certificate signed by Silas Ware Mitchell. Annie Inglis was buried at West Laurel Hill Cemetery, Marion Section, Lot 476. Scarlet fever, also known as scarlatina, was a scourge in Victorian America and England. 
although identified as early as the 16th century, it wasn't until the 17th and 18th century that it made major, if irregular, epidemic appearances on both sides of the Atlantic. By the 1840s, deaths had nearly doubled from the decades before, and for the next generation, scarlet fever and associated streptococcal infections were the most frightening communicable diseases among the infectious ailments of childhood. Different strains of streptococcus produced different amounts of toxin, leading to epidemics of varying severity, with mortality rates ranging up to 30%. Mortality records show the disease completely dwarfed diphtheria, measles, and pertussis, whooping cough, as causes of death among those under 15 years of age. The year of highest mortality was 1863, when the death rate among children under 15 was 3,966 per million living. That's one out of every 252 children died from scarlet fever. To put things in perspective, as I write this in October 2021, one out of every 500 people in America has died from COVID-19. It was not until the 1870s that the name streptococcus was used for the causative agent of scarlet fever. Now, by the 1880s, the disease remained widely prevalent, but its character was relatively mild. And by the 20th century, mortality from scarlet fever had begun to drop, even in the pre-penicillin days. Streptococcus was and still is exquisitely sensitive to treatment with penicillin. Complications of scarlet fever are divided into two categories, suppurative or pus-producing and non-suppurative, usually due to autoimmune response. Nowadays, suppurative complications such as retropharyngeal and peritonsillar abscesses, cellulitis, mastoiditis, and sinusitis are uncommon. The non-suppurative complications are far worse and unpredictable. Acute rheumatic fever can lead to arthritis, carditis, neurologic issues such as the uncontrollable movements of Sydenham's chorea and various skin findings. Many of these become chronic and lifelong. Endocarditis with its damage to the heart valves and inevitable heart failure. Damage to the kidneys and an acute nephritic syndrome, sometimes called Bright's disease, or debilitating arthritis. The latter is probably why Annie was confined to a wheelchair. For two years after Annie's death, her mother, Caroline K. Inglis, 1829-1902, labored to raise funds for such a place for people to live. According to the Inglis House website, she auctioned the $1 gold piece many times to accumulate necessary funds. If you're wondering how she did it, I don't know. But then again, I don't know how blogger Kyle McDonald once started with a paperclip and 14 trades later ended up with a house. I emailed Inglis House in hopes of speaking with their historian, but I have heard nothing in response. One way or another, the funds were raised, and the Philadelphia Home for Incurables was opened in 1877 at 47th and Darby Road. 16 women were received as patients, and as soon as it opened, there wasn't enough room. Three years later, the site at 48th and Woodland near Gray's Ferry Road was established to provide for 40 patients. Now, Annie had been raised by her mother after her father died in 1861. William Cowper Inglis, who was born in 1833, went to Dickinson College and along the way became a lawyer. 
He was practicing in Cheraw, South Carolina when the war broke out, and he quickly joined the ranks of the rebels, rising to the rank of captain and serving in the 8th Regiment of South Carolina Volunteers. He died of typhoid fever while serving in Richmond, Virginia when Annie was five years old. Even more interesting is William's father, or Annie's paternal grandfather, John Achenclaus Inglis, 1813-1878. John A. Inglis was born in Baltimore, the son of Presbyterian minister James Inglis, who was then pastor of the First Presbyterian Church in the city. He also attended Dickinson College and graduated with the class of 1829 at age 16. He then taught school for a while in Carlisle, Pennsylvania while studying law. Inglis relocated to Cheraw, South Carolina, where he opened a law practice with his partner Henry MacGyver. MacGyver was later a Chief Justice of the state Supreme Court. He does have a Wikipedia entry. Their small wooden law office has been preserved and still stands in the town. It's one of the few buildings in Cheraw that survived the Civil War. John Inglis quickly became one of the four chancellors of the state courts of South Carolina. In 1860, Chesterfield County was a leading voice in the secession crisis, and they sent Inglis to the South Carolina Convention in December 1860 as one of its three delegates. There, he was named chair of the seven-man committee responsible for drawing up the Ordinance of Secession. Eventually, he became known as one of its authors. The ordinance was based on South Carolina's insistence on following Article 4, Section 2 of the Constitution, which included the Fugitive Slave Law. No person held to service or labor in one state, under the laws thereof escaping into another, shall in consequence of any law or regulation therein be discharged from such service or labor, but shall be delivered up on claim of the party to whom such service or labor may be due. They point out that 13 states have enacted laws which either nullify the acts of Congress or render useless any attempt to execute them. In many of these states, the fugitive is discharged from service or labor claimed, and in none of them has the state government complied with the stipulation made in the Constitution. It went on to explain how the northern states had broken its own laws to the detriment of the South. On Thursday, 20 December 1860, the convention issued an ordinance of secession announcing the state's withdrawal from the Union. The ordinance was brief and legalistic, and the vote in favor was 169 to nothing. We, the people of the state of South Carolina, in convention assembled, do declare and ordain, and it is hereby declared and ordained, that the ordinance adopted by us in convention on the 23rd day of May in the year of our Lord 1788, whereby the Constitution of the United States of America was ratified, and also all acts and parts of acts of the General Assembly of this state, ratifying amendment of the said Constitution, are hereby repealed, and that the union now subsisting between South Carolina and other states under the name of the United States of America, is hereby dissolved. This, of course, was the act that triggered the Civil War. 
He was a committed secessionist, but John Inglis later denied that he was the sole author of this one-page document, as did fellow member Judge Francis Wardlaw. There is no doubt that they both were involved in its composition, and both of them signed the ordinance. Now, during the war, Inglis served four years in Confederate government as a justice of the State Court of Appeals. He remained active in the church and was delegate to the Bible Convention of the Confederate States in Augusta, Georgia, in March 1862. After Union General William Tecumseh Sherman made his plundering march to the sea in late 1864, making Georgia howl, he turned north toward the seat of secession, South Carolina where he and his troops would bring a special brutality to bear. They perceived South Carolinians as the instigators, and they wanted to teach residents a lesson they would not soon forget or be able to deny. As an aside, my great-great-grandfather, Private James P. Smith, 1835-1916, a member of Company F, 32nd Regiment, Illinois Infantry, was with William Tecumseh Sherman on that march. John Inglis was declared a fugitive and a $10,000 bounty placed on his head. Sherman and his men followed the then current belief that Inglis had drafted the ordinance of secession by his own hand and thus led the charge, so to speak, in the secession effort. His denial of authorship of the ordinance initially spared his summer home. But when the Union troops entered the premises, there was a copy of the Ordinance of Secession hanging on the wall. They burnt his place to the ground. Following the war, Inglis attempted to restart his law practice, but in 1868 he returned to Baltimore. Back in Maryland, he rebuilt his legal career, and by 1870 he had been appointed as a professor of commercial law at the University of Maryland, and he had been named as Chief Justice of the Orphans Court of Maryland, serving until his death in August 1878. William and John, Annie's father and grandfather, are buried in Cheraw at the old St. David's Episcopal Church Cemetery. Now back to Philadelphia and John's granddaughter, Annie Inglis. By 1927, as more buildings were added, the Home for Incurables had reached a population of 162 men, women, and children, and there was a long waiting list. 24 of the residents had been there for 10 to 20 years, 9 had been there for 20 to 30 years, and 2 for more than 35 years. They had cared for 1,625 patients by that time, and at no time had a man ever served on the board of directors. On 20 October 1927, 2.30 p.m., a cornerstone was laid for a new building at an eight-acre site at Belmont and Conshohocken Avenues. It was designed by the Ballinger Company, a prominent Philadelphia architectural engineering firm. In the cornerstone at the south side of the entrance was a copper box showing progress of the home during its 50 years of existence, photographs of the new building, and the name of one donor who was selected by the chair of the building committee, Mrs. Caleb J. Milne, Jr. The Milne family is buried just a few hundred feet from Annie's grave at West Laurel Hill Cemetery. And 33 years later, in 1960, the Home for the Incurables was officially renamed for its initiator, Annie Inglis. It officially became Inglis House. 
Currently, Inglis House provides long-term residential care for 252 adults with physical disabilities. Inglis Community Support Services supports more than 800 people living independently in the community. And it is the largest provider of affordable, accessible housing in Philadelphia, with more than 300 units available for people with disabilities. Annie Inglis's dream of what her $1 gold piece could do in 1875 has been realized and then some. I want to mention that Annie is buried literally in the shade of one of West Laurel Hill Cemetery's state champion trees. It's a weeping Japanese scholar tree, Stiphnolobium japonicum. West Laurel Hill Cemetery and Laurel Hill Cemetery together are accredited as a level two arboretum. There are 3,412 trees and shrubs in West Laurel Hill Cemetery each of which has a numbered tag. If you go to westlaurelhill.com under About and Arboretum, there is a PDF of all the trees in the cemetery listed by tag number. Four of them are state champion trees, like the Weeping Japanese Scholar Tree. The website pabigtrees.com determines the trees that qualify for designation. Everyone in Philadelphia knows about the SEPTA Route 23, since it used to be the city's longest streetcar route. It extended from Chestnut Hill all the way down to Broad in Oregon. It had started as a horse car line in 1853, and it went electric as a trolley in 1894, running for 98 years before giving way to the current bus route, much to the disappointment of trolley car enthusiasts everywhere. It seemed to follow the cobblestone street of Germantown Avenue forever as it trundled through North Philadelphia, taking passengers to Center City and beyond. Now, if you were heading downhill on the trolley in the 1930s from Chestnut Hill, you would have seen block after block of homes and small businesses. At 4661 Germantown, just a block off Stanton Avenue between East Abbotsford Avenue and East Sylvania Street, you might have noticed the music store run by Lithuanian immigrant and violinist Joseph Jerseyakonis, who'd been born in Vilnius. Joseph married Helen in Bahonis, and they had four children, Victor, Albert, Sylvia, and Joseph Jr., who was born in 1923 before they left Lithuania. Joseph Sr. must have seen musical talent in his namesake early, as the Germantown High School student was quickly recognized as a child prodigy on the violin cello. In fact, early in 1939, he had won a scholarship to Curtis Institute of Music near Rittenhouse Square in Center City, Philadelphia. While in his third year of high school, he played the cello with the school orchestra. Felix Salmond, 1888-1952, a cello teacher at Curtis, and Orlando Cole, 1908-2010, cellist with the Curtis String Quartet, both heard the boy play and were so impressed that they induced Mrs. Mary Louise Curtis Bach to grant him a four-year scholarship. Joseph was excited to begin his studies in the fall of 1939. Both Salmond and Cole have extensive Wikipedia write-ups. 
I talked briefly about the Curtis Institute in podcast number 16, the Saturday Evening Post. It had opened on 13 October 1924 due to the passion and the work and the generosity of Mary Louise Curtis Bach, who named it in honor of her father, Cyrus Curtis. That Bach, by the way, is B-O-K and not B-A-C-H. Her father, Cyrus Curtis, was publisher of Ladies Home Journal, Saturday Evening Post, and other magazines. Cyrus Curtis is interred at West Laurel Hill Cemetery in the Plymouth section. After purchasing three contiguous mansions on Rittenhouse Square, she had them converted into one large building with performing spaces, practice rooms, and other amenities for musicians. And then Mary Louise generously made an initial donation of more than $5 million for the endowment so worthy students would never have to pay tuition. An equivalent in 2021 would be $70 million. A few years later, in May 1927, she gave another $7 million. Mary Louise's mother, Louisa Knapp Curtis, 1851-1910, was the first editor of Ladies Home Journal. She's buried at Laurel Hill Cemetery in the River Section under a lovely pergola. A 1927 catalog for the Curtis Institute bragged about how arrangements had been made with several local homes for the housing of students, rooming accommodations, with rentals ranging from $5 to $7 a week per person for double rooms, $8 to $10 a week for single rooms, and $150 a month for an apartment of three rooms, bath, and kitchenette. That's roughly $2,200 in current value. That might get you a single bedroom on Rittenhouse Square in 2021. Meals were available in the near neighborhood and in a few instances in the same house. The student guide also recommended at least $10 a week ought to be reserved for food if proper consideration is to be given to the nourishing and well-balanced diet that a student needs. The Institute serves luncheon at cost to the teachers and the students. Joseph would not have to worry about room and board. With a trolley car literally running past his front door several times daily, he could live at home and commute to one of the two or three best music schools in the country and tuition-free. But on 1 July 1939, all the Jersey family's dreams came crashing down. Joseph Jr. had a hobby of collecting old weapons, and his neighbor and high school classmate John Elliott, also 16, who lived around the corner at 126 West Sylvania Street, had something exciting to show him. In John Elliott's second-floor bedroom, he enthusiastically lifted a 32 caliber revolver from a bureau drawer to show it off, and the gun went off in his hand. A bullet pierced Joseph's abdomen. He was frantically taken to Germantown Hospital just a short distance away, but Joseph was dead within 15 minutes. His death certificate gives the cause of death as gunshot wound to the abdomen. Elliot was arrested and spent the next two weeks in jail awaiting a coroner's inquest. On 13 July, he was exonerated when coroner's physician Dr. William S. Wadsworth testified about Joseph's bizarre manner of death. In my many years of experience, I do not recall anything like this case. The boy was shot in the stomach by a gun not pointed at him. I found that Elliot was showing the other boy his weapon, starting to break it, and then it went off. Jersey Oconus was standing up, holding his own pistol, his arm extended. 
The bullet fired by Elliot struck the other boy's gun in the firing groove and then split. The largest part of it ricocheted and struck Jersiaconus in the stomach. The other parts were smashed into small pieces. We found them scattered around the room. Coroner Hirsch exonerated Elliot, but told him the accident should be a lesson to him not to play with weapons about which you know nothing. John Thomas Elliott, born 8 February 1923, went on to join the Army on 3 December 1942 when he was 19 years old. He served honorably as a tech sergeant with Company I, 508th Parachute Infantry, for 13 months stateside and for 22 months overseas. He was discharged on 10 November 1945. He died at Cape May, New Jersey in 1975 at the age of 52, and his body was cremated. Joseph Jersiaconis Jr. was buried at Laurel Hill Cemetery, Section Z, Lot 524. His father was buried in the same plot seven years later when he died at age 61. Curiously, when I did an internet search, I encountered a cello player with the Memphis Symphony named Jeffrey Jersiaconis. I could not locate his email. I did email the Memphis Symphony, asking if they would put me in touch with him. That was about two weeks ago. I am still waiting. Now that the weather has cooled down, join us on a live tour at Laurel Hill or West Laurel Hill Cemetery. There's a fall foliage tour of Laurel Hill on Sunday, 7 November at 1 p.m. The annual Marine Corps anniversary ceremony will take place on Wednesday, November 10th at 11 a.m. in the south section near the grave of General Jacob Zylan. Don't worry, you can ask at the gatehouse for directions. Volunteer guide Rich Wilhelm gives his not-to-be-missed heavenly intonations Laurel Hills Musical Legacy Tour on Sunday, 14 November at 1 p.m. There's a new tour by long-term guide Marty Foley on War Racketeers in Laurel Hills Cemetery that debuts on Sunday, the 21st of November at 1 p.m. You bet I'm going to be there for that one. Plus, there are several general tours of both Laurel Hills Cemetery and West Laurel Hills Cemetery in November. Opium. It's been used for centuries before and after Christ. Fetid is God's own medicine by none other than Sir William Osler. It is the only drug over which not one, but two wars have been fought. Opium and its derivatives, heroin, morphine, codeine, have been used for both the benefit and the detriment of millions of people, both legally and illegally, throughout history. You may have grown up with opium in your medicine cabinet. In fact, it still may be there. Paragoric, or camphorated 4% tincture of opium, has been used for generations to treat diarrhea and cough. Once available over the counter, you can still get it in the United States with a prescription. And belladonna and opium suppositories, known as B&O, are still in the armamentarium of urologists around the world. 
Opium's history in the United States is as old as the country itself. Benjamin Franklin took opium late in his life to cope with the severe pain caused by his bladder stones. Alexander Hamilton received laudanum, a mixture of opium and alcohol, after he was shot in his fatal duel with Aaron Burr. George Washington purportedly used laudanum to alleviate the pains of bad dentition. Thomas Jefferson had the foresight to grow opium poppies at Monticello. They were removed on the demand of the Drug Enforcement Administration in the 1990s. First Lady Mary Todd Lincoln became a laudanum addict. In those days, before antidepressants, sleeping pills, and safe analgesics like acetaminophen and aspirin, laudanum was a panacea and a wonder drug. It was also a working-class drug. A bottle of laudanum was cheaper than a bottle of wine or gin. Victorian medical texts listed many ways you could get your opium. Electuaries, that is, mixed with honey. Opiate confection. Dover's powder, opium plus ipecacuana. Sydenham's laudanum, opium plus wine. Opium suppositories, opium liniments, plaster of opium. It was all legal and all readily available if you knew where to look and who to ask. The Civil War set off America's 19th century opiate epidemic. The Union Army alone issued nearly 10 million opium pills to its soldiers, plus 2.8 million ounces of opium powders and tinctures. The hypodermic needle, introduced in 1856, became a popular way of taking opium. Morphine, an opium derivative, had been introduced by Merck in 1827. Heroin, originally developed as a cure for morphine addiction, didn't come on the market until 1895, and then it was sold over-the-counter without a prescription as a cough suppressant. In 1888, opiates made up 15% of all prescriptions dispensed in Boston. Male doctors used morphine to treat their female patients with menstrual cramps, morning sickness, and, quote, diseases of a nervous character, end quote. By the late 1800s, with legal and unregulated narcotics freely used, women made up more than 60% of opium addicts, and one of every 200 Americans was addicted to a narcotic. In 2021, this number is estimated to be about 1 in 160 Americans addicted to a narcotic. In his 1881 book, The Opium Habit and Alcoholism, Dr. Frederick Hubbard wrote, Uterine and ovarian complications cause more ladies to fall into the opium habit than all other diseases combined. It was only around 1895 that physicians realized the gravity of the problem and tried to wean their patients off opium-derived drugs to non-addictive pain relievers. Aspirin had been introduced in 1899, created by the same man who had invented heroin a few years earlier. As doctors cut their patients down on addictive substances, some people found they had become dependent and sought a release for their cravings from other sources. Other people, just as today, sought drugs for recreational purposes to alleviate the dullness and the tedium of their daily lives. Opium smoking started spreading across the United States in the 1870s, with Chinese immigrants operating opium dens in most major western towns and then spreading east. They were attracting a mixed clientele. 
Chinese immigrant workers whose conditions were appalling, and numerous white Americans, especially lower-class men. One opium smoker said in 1883, It's a poor town nowadays that has not a Chinese laundry, and nearly every one of those has its layout. Philadelphia was no exception. In 1871, a Cantonese immigrant named Lee Fong opened a laundry at 913 Wraith Street. In the following years, numerous ethnic Chinese immigrants who were fleeing racist backlash and violence from the western cities where they had originally settled clustered in this area and Philadelphia's Chinatown was born. It was a vibrant community, mostly of bachelors, because of the Restrictive Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882. It took up several square blocks between the city's Skid Row to the east and the Tenderloin District to the west. By the close of the 19th century, these areas contained Philadelphia's cheap amusements district and housed as many as 250 pool rooms, gambling resorts, saloons, opium dens, and brothels. Into this intriguing environment came a young woman of an old Philadelphia family. Mary Ann Laura Bibighaus, that's B-I-B-I-G-H-A-U-S, she was usually called May, was born sometime between 1879 and 1881. The newspapers in 1900 said she was 19, but other sources have her as old as 21. Her father, Charles Theodore Bibighaus, had been a private in the Union Army with Company E, 19th Pennsylvania Infantry. He was wounded and on a pension when he died before his 50th birthday in 1893. May's grandfather, Dr. Charles Henry Bibighaus, was a graduate of Franklin and Marshall College and is listed as living at 94 Greenhouse in McElroy's 1839 Philadelphia City Directory. May Bibighaus, almost invariably referred to in the newspapers as Pretty May Bibighaus, had in May 1899 taken on the Christian cause of converting these Chinese immigrants to her religion and teaching them English. She was a member of the Protestant Episcopal Church of the Annunciation at 12th and Diamond. She lived at 1634 North 12th Street. While still a teenager, she personally went to Mrs. J.D. Nash, the superintendent of the Chinese mission at 13th and Girard, and offered her services as a teacher. She was assigned a scholar, and according to the newspaper, using the language of the day, he was a young Mongolian, absolutely ignorant of even the letters of the alphabet. She worked hard and tried to give him not only a knowledge of the English language, but also Christian principles, which were to open up a, to him a new world. Her friends wondered if her pupil had instructed her in the ways of the Orient. End quote. On 24 January 1900, May had a chance meeting with an old friend, Hugh Kennedy, at 9th and Chestnut. She told Kennedy that she wanted to smoke some opium and that he should meet her at the St. Charles Hotel that night. She assured him that she had been smoking it for about a year. Another acquaintance, Harry Parker, who had experience with opium use, joined them. They went to his room at 1106 Vine, and not far from the heart of Chinatown. Parker cooked the opium. Kennedy later said, May seemed so full of life and had been smoking about an hour and a half when she groaned and looked white in the face. 
I went downstairs and was about to go for a doctor when Mr. White came into the room. By this time, May was bleeding from the nose and we loosened her clothes. A doctor was sent for and he told us she was dying. Mr. George White, proprietor of the house, dispatched Kennedy to the 6th District Police Station on 11th Below Vine, and a patrol wagon was hurriedly summoned. The dying woman was rushed to the Hahnemann Hospital. At 4.25 a.m., the wagon reached the hospital, and at 5.40 a.m., May Bibbinghouse was dead. The police immediately arrested the eight people they found in the apartment house, and they hauled them all off to jail. The Philadelphia Inquirer almost instantly sent a reporter to Chinatown, where he was able to buy enough opium openly, quote, to kill two men at the same shop where May had purchased hers. The reporter then went to another shop on Ray Street above 9th. Again, the language of the day. I want two bits of hop. Ah, yite, came from a fat, cunning-eyed Chinaman who presided behind the counter. The fat individual dug a knife into a tin can filled with a brown mass and smeared some on a little pasteboard box, cleverly made from a folded playing card. He suspended the box in a pan on a tiny pair of scales, adjusted the weight, and then the result of the test being satisfactory wrapped up the tiny package. The reporter says he took the box of hop, laid a quarter dollar, two bits, on the counter, and walked out. The reporter also mentioned there were several other places he could have gone and received the same service. Six of the men arrested at the house were charged in May's death, with Hugh Kennedy as the principal and the others as accessories. They all swore that May had stated she was an opium fiend. One of the men even said that May had told him she had smoked about 20 times. May's family, of course, testified that she was a good girl. She had no bad habits and had told them that she was to attend the theater that night with a friend. The inquest on the next day determined that May Bibbinghouse had come to her death from the effects of opium administered at the hands of Hugh Kennedy, Harry Parker, and three others. When informed by the young men's lawyer that there were several people present who were willing to testify that they had seen the girls smoke opium, the coroner said, if they want to exhibit themselves as opium fiends, I am sure I have no objection, but I cannot see any reason for attacking a dead girl. The accused men were found guilty of involuntary manslaughter. Several local ministers chimed in when they were interviewed by the Inquirer. They all agreed it was a bad idea for a young girl such as May to try and teach Christianity to a Chinaman outside of a Sunday school or a mission. Mayor Sam Stars and Stripes Ashbridge, later determined to be the most corrupt mayor in Philadelphia history, added his opinion that the smoking of cigarettes among women is very prevalent in the city and that their effect is every bit as bad as the smoking of opium. I will do a podcast on Sam Ashbridge sometime in the future. On Saturday, 27 January 1900, May Bibbinghouse had a wake in her home attended by hundreds of people. There were bunches of white roses at the head and foot of her casket, and her body was clad in a robe of spotless white, and one of her slender hands held a bunch of lilies of the valley. After a prayer for the rest of the dead girl's soul, 
the coffin was closed and the cortege made its way up Ridge Avenue where May Bibbinghouse was laid to rest at the family plot in the south section of Laurel Hill Cemetery, quote, and this sacrifice to Chinese vice was ended, end quote. Back in Chinatown, the police started a series of raids, arresting Chinese and whites alike. Several young women, quote, as pretty as May Bibbinghouse, end quote, were among those arrested. The mission schools to teach Christianity and English to Chinese immigrants continued to use young white Christian girls as tutors, much to the disgust of the newspaper, which described, quote, sallow-faced Chinamen leaning over their shoulders and pretending to read and study from the Bibles which they hold, end quote. Less than two weeks after May's death, the Inquirer reported, See Chinatown is the new fad. Everybody wants to catch a glimpse of the famous race street colony. Streetcars and pedestrians crowded the streets, and everyone was talking about Chinatown. But in May, all charges were dropped against the men convicted of involuntary manslaughter, and they were released with time served, the judge having thought that they'd learned their lesson. It was not until 1912, with the election of Reform Mayor Rudolph Blankenberg, also known as the Dutch Cleanser, that the Tenderloin area and Chinatown's opium dens started to shut down for good. In late June 1886, Martius S. Bulkley, scion of the paper manufacturing firm of Southworth Bulkley & Company on South 7th Street, bumped into Miss Mamie Stevens in Atlantic City. They were both members of the Novelty Social Club in Philadelphia, and they struck up a conversation on the boardwalk. Mamie wistfully pointed out some yachts offshore and suggested the idea of a social club cruise. She would supply some of her lady friends and a chaperone, and Martius would look after the gentleman. On Saturday, 24 July, at the Spruce Street dock, Martius approached Captain Edward Ruland of the two-masted schooner yacht, the Sarah Craig, which was unloading 3,500 Georgia watermelons it had picked up from Wilmington, North Carolina, on the 17th of July. He asked about procuring the boat for an 11-day cruise up to New York and back, and a deal was made. The party would supply its own cooks and feed the crew as well as themselves. They would pay Ruland $13 a day for use of his schooner. It looked to be a delightful summer sail on the Sarah Craig. Members of the Novelty Social Club were assembled for the sale by Chester T. Clark, telegraph manager at the Broad Street Station, who lived on South 34th Street. They left Philadelphia on Tuesday morning, 27 July 1886, at 10 a.m. for a leisurely trip up the coast to Cape May, Atlantic City, Long Branch, and various watering spots along the Atlantic seaboard. They plan to spend a day in New York City and then take a five-day sail back. Mr. Clark's fiancée, Ms. Rod Retu, age 17, was sailing with the group, as was Mamie Stevens, age 21, who was engaged to Alfred Porter, another passenger. Mamie's sister, Mrs. Cora Aiken, age 24, was yet another passenger, and the Stevens sister's mother, Mrs. T. Stevens, served as chaperone for the voyage. 
Another set of sisters aboard was Miss Emma Merritt, age 21, and Miss Bessie Merritt, age 17. All told, 16 persons were on board, including Captain Edward Ruland with a mate and two sailors. Ruland was an experienced deep-sea sailor with four Atlantic Ocean crossings under his belt. The two-masted schooner, the Sarah Craig, was built at Patchogue, Long Island in 1884. She was nearly 49 feet long, 19 and a half feet wide, 5 feet deep, and could carry 27 tons of cargo. She had been in the coastal trade since she was built, usually carrying fruit and vegetables in the summer and pine wood in the winter. The yacht stopped at Cape May on Wednesday evening as scheduled and reached Atlantic City the following morning, where the guests were entertained at the Bellevue Hotel. Miss Jessie McClure, sister of the hotel proprietor, was invited to join them and went on the yacht, but apparently got seasick and disembarked before it sailed again. On Friday morning, the yacht left Atlantic City on its way to Long Branch. Now, the weather had been all that anyone could ask for up until about 6 p.m. Friday, just as they sighted Sandy Hook. Then the wind suddenly died out, and for half an hour or so the sails flipped idly as the vessel rocked lazily to and fro. The party was enjoying supper on deck when a few drops of rain brought it to a hurried end, and the food and passengers were quickly removed to the cabin. The ladies scurried below deck to avoid the rain, but the drop stopped after a few minutes, and they all came back on board, laughing about how they had to end their dinner so quickly, and apparently unnecessarily. But Captain Rulin noted heavy clouds gathering in the west, and it wasn't many minutes before the entire party, except for Mrs. Stevens and Retu, were glad to seek the shelter of the cabin to avoid the second shower. It was the next day when Captain Ruland explained what happened. When the second flash of rain came, we were about a mile due east of Sandy Hook Point. I noticed some threatening and murky-looking clouds gathering in the northwest and considerable lightning, but didn't look for anything more than an ordinary summer thunder shower. I'd taken in the foresail and tied it fast to the mast to be ready for a blow. Mrs. Stevens and Retu were on deck, and I told them they'd better go below in order to give me plenty of room. Suddenly, I saw from the appearance of the water that a squall was coming from the west-southwest, and I ordered the mate and the bowman to haul down the jib. They got it partly down, but the wind came with such a fury that it was impossible to move it an inch further. I put the becket on the wheel, fastened it hard down, and went forward to help. It was of no use, however. The jib was jammed tight by the force of the wind, and before I knew what had happened, we were over on our starboard beam in five fathoms of water. Just as we keeled over, the young men of the party came up on deck to give us a hand, and they had all they could do to keep from being swept off by the seas that were breaking over us. The wind was blowing a perfect hurricane, and hailstones as big as hen's eggs struck us with such force about the face and hands that it seemed as though they would knock us senseless. The blow and hail lasted for ten minutes, and then there was a lull. 
It was at this time that we first heard the cries of the women in the cabin, the least side of which was underwater. We tried every means to get at them and finally made an effort to break in the cabin roof with a fender and get them out that way. But while we were doing this, a second squall, heavier than the first, set in from the west. We climbed up to the weather side and hung onto the rail as long as this lasted. It seemed an eternity. The hailstones were the largest I have ever seen, and they came with the force of a ball from a pistol. Now, when the second squall let up, Rulin signaled a pilot boat and a tugboat for assistance, both of which came. The men on board made several unsuccessful attempts to dive to the cabin door and open it, but they were driven back time and time again by the weather and the tides. It is here that the story turns truly horrifying. All the while, the women in the cabin were crying piteously for help and thumping on the sides of the cabin. Roland describes how another tugboat, the William Cramp, named for the Philadelphia shipbuilder who was buried at Laurel Hill Cemetery, came along to offer help. Despite being encouraged to jump to the tugboat, the men insisted on staying with the Craig until the women were safe. The Cramp threw a line which they made fast to the jib traveler, but the Cramp encountered too much ebb tide and wind to pull the Craig towards shore. When the jib gave way, it took part of the bulwark with it, and the cramp drifted off. Another tug, the Haviland, made a try at rescue, but they too were blown away by the wind. Finally, the men abandoned the sinking Craig for the rescuing tugboats when they were told that lightening the load might be the only way to save the Craig. The men were frantic with grief and guilt for leaving the Craig without the women. The Haviland made yet another effort to grab the Craig and tow it ashore, but they were again unsuccessful. To everyone's horror, they heard the women moaning and thumping on the sides of the cabin for at least 90 minutes after the Craig keeled over. The port rail was then about three feet out of the water. The noises from the cabin started to fade away. It was not until morning, when the tide turned, that they were able to get the capsized Craig to the shore. By then, the wreck had settled even more, and not more than an inch of the port rail was visible. After several unsuccessful attempts to right the capsized Craig, Captain Gully of the Haviland, who was a native of the West Indies and an experienced diver, took the unpleasant task of diving into the submerged cabin. One by one, he brought out five bodies. They were laid on the wooden grating at the stern of the Haviland and covered with a tarpaulin. Two people were not accounted for. The young men who had escaped death were a miserable sight as they sat in the cabin of the Haviland. Nearly all of them had blackened eyes showing the force of the hailstones, and two of them had severe cuts on the faces and heads. One of them wept copiously. We, we were none of us sailors and had no idea that a storm was approaching. When, when the vessel keeled over, we thought we might be able to render some assistance on deck, so we went up, with the exception of Clark. I had just started up the companionway when a, when a rush of water from behind seemed to carry me up a little way and then pull me back down again. Potter saw my predicament, and grabbing my hand, he pulled me on deck.
When I got there, I was forced to clutch the first thing that came my way, which fortunately was the weather rail. As I hung there, I saw a woman's hand pushed out through one of the cabin windows, and I managed to get hold of it. It slipped away, however, and a ring was left in my hand. This ring, I recognized, it belonged to Miss Emma Merritt. I think we must have been crazy for the two hours following the capsizing. On the morning of 1 August, 1886, all the bodies except Bessie Merritt's had been recovered and were taken by train back to Philadelphia. The remains of Mrs. Stevens and her two daughters, Miss Emma Merritt, Miss Maud E. Retu, and Mr. Chester Clark arrived from Long Branch on Sunday afternoon. The engaged couple of Mr. Clark and Miss Retu perished. Miss Mamie Stevens died, but her fiancé Potter survived. For the next several days, newspapers all over the country carried the news of this tragedy. The Philadelphia Inquirer described in almost ghoulish details the arrival of the bodies at the Broad Street Station. There were six dark-colored ice boxes standing in a row, each with the name of an unfortunate inscribed upon the lid. The three members of the Stevens family were taken to the family home at 1933 Judson Place. Emma Merritt was taken to the family home at 861 North 20th Street, awaiting the arrival of the remains of her sister the next day. And at the family home of Maud Ritu, the youngest of the group, her parents were nearly paralyzed with grief when her body was brought to their home at 1307 North 12th Street. The newspaper notes that, quote, the body was in perfect condition and showed no signs of suffering. The Inquirer gave details of the wake and the funerals. At the Merritt household, a dim light burned in the hall chandelier, and the parlor walls were hidden deep with flowers, while the room was crowded with young ladies, the former associates of the deceased sisters. The caskets stood side by side, the heads toward the windows. The face of Bessie was turned to the right, with a natural and easy inclination as in sleep. The lips were slightly parted. No discoloration was perceptible save around the eyelids and mouth. The hands, however, were swollen and discolored and brought vividly to mind the frightful tragedy of that closed cabin from which there was no escape. The face of the younger sister was covered and the hands discolored, bruised, and abraded. Miss Retu's wake was at the home and long before noon there were at least 5,000 men, women, and children in the street. The Inquirer notes, There was a general eagerness to look upon the face of the fair girl whose death had awakened their interest, and the laws of decorum were not always remembered by those who wished to make their way into the house, despite the opposition of the police. Embedded in masses of the choicest flowers lay the dead girl, robed in white, for her bridal with death. Her face perfectly free from disfigurement and her expression so lifelike that many were moved to exclamations of surprise at her beauty. 
The interment of the Merritt sisters, Miss Bessie and Miss Emma, took place at North Laurel Hill Cemetery in the family plot at Section W, Plot 134. They share a tombstone. Both of their names are on it. The funeral of Miss Maud E. Ratu was at 1 p.m. at South Laurel Hill, Section 14, Lot 142. They are our final teen angels for the November podcast. I had intended to tell the stories of Marion Ashmead and the immigrant girls who were killed in a rush for the doors during a false alarm at a cigar factory, but I ran out of time. I will probably do a podcast about them later, and then I can tell you the story of a teenager who was killed while looking for her missing cat, and another accidental shooting of a teenager with much potential. Next time in the December 2021 edition of All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories, it's Smile for the Birdie, Photo and Film Pioneers. Robert Cornelius took the first selfie in Philadelphia in 1839. Frederick Gudekunst was the go-to photographer for wealthy Philadelphians. Matthew Carey Lee left his law practice and the publishing business to dedicate his time to the advancement of the chemistry of photography. Paul Beck Goddard, Coleman Sellers II, and William H. Rao are other Philadelphia names familiar to the photography historian. They are all interred at either Laurel Hill Cemetery or West Laurel Hill Cemetery, and I will tell their stories in the December episode of All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories. Laurel Hill Cemetery is located at 3822 Ridge Avenue in the East Falls section of Philadelphia. It is within an easy walk from the bus stop at Ridge and Allegheny for SEPTA buses R1 and 61. Admission is free, as is parking in the lot across the street. West Laurel Hill Cemetery is at 225 Belmont Avenue in Valley Kinwood, with parking available at the main entrance and at the bell tower. Your best bet for public transportation is to take the SEPTA Regional Rail to Maniunk or one of the many buses to the Wissahickon Transfer Center on Ridge Avenue. Then cross the Schuylkill River on the Pencoid Pedestrian Bridge and come up the Riders Ferry Road to the entrance near the Pet Cemetery. Both Laurel Hill Cemetery and West Laurel Hill Cemetery are now open from 7 a.m. to 5 p.m. And we will be through March when we go back to our 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. hours. We welcome dog walkers, bike riders, photographers, bird watchers, nature buffs, and strollers, both the two-footed and the four-wheeled variety. And now, of course, leaf peepers. Both Laurel Hill Cemetery and West Laurel Hill Cemetery are open for historic tours. I mentioned them before. Uh, We do expect you to follow current CDC guidelines when you join us. And we'll still have some pay-what-you-wish virtual tours via Zoom. All of this is in the schedule you can find at thelaurelhillcemetery.org or westlaurelhill.com. And there is more to satisfy your curiosity. laurelhillcemetery.blog 
has a new entry by Russ Dodge that you probably need to read. You can follow us on Instagram where you'll get a daily reminder of our inhabitants and activities. And if that's not enough, check out the virtual tours I've done on YouTube. Laurel Hill Cemetery, Hot Spots and Storied Plots, virtual tour number one and number two. They both give you an overview. All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories video podcast number one is on illustrator A.B. Frost and his family. And podcast number 22 on ornithologists and entomologists is also available as a video podcast on YouTube. Once you have fallen in love with these hot spots, become a friend of Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill cemeteries, and you'll have the opportunity for several members-only tours conducted each year, including some inside-the-mausoleum visits. They may be cemeteries, but they are a couple of the liveliest spots in town. I'm Joe Lex, retired professor of emergency medicine at Temple University, reminding you to keep body and soul together until next time on All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories, where the plot thickens. You can contact me at joe at joelex.net. I also invite you to listen to the radio show that I do for WPPM-FM in Philadelphia every Tuesday afternoon at 2 p.m. East Coast time. I go back 60 years and read you some news stories while also playing jazz that was recorded that week. You can stream it from phillycam.org slash listen, or you can listen from my website, joelex.xyz. Stick around if you want to hear the references that I use for this podcast. And until the next time we meet, stay safe, stay well. Just as in last month, I would say a majority of the references for this episode uh, was from contemporary newspapers. Now, some of the material for Annie Inglis did come from Inglis House website. Uh, The information on her father and grandfather came from various other websites. Uh, The online archives at Dickinson University was really helpful, as was an article by Erica Quesenberry Sturgill in the Cecil Whig, dated 22 December 2018. Uh, Articles about the newer editions of Inglis House came directly from the Philadelphia Inquirer. The sad story of Joseph Jersey Jr. came from the 1939 editions of the Philadelphia Inquirer. Information on Curtis Institute came from its website, and I found the 1927 Curtis catalog online as a PDF. May Bibbinghouse's death was front-page news in Philadelphia throughout late January of 1900. There was an 1881 textbook I found called The Opium Habit and Alcoholism by Dr. Frederick Hubbard. It was very helpful in understanding the 19th century narcotic problem. Well, chapter 28 of a book by Hans Dirk called History of the Opium Problem, the Assault on the East, 1600 to 1950, also gave me some good information. Finally, the story of the tragic sailing adventure of the Novelty Social Club was taken directly from the newspapers of the day. Stay well. I'll see you next time.